and uh, in our criticism of the individualism of our society, let's not forget the, the value um, of it in the first place. The fact that we now laugh at adverts which uh, tell you that it's because you're worth it. Uh, the fact that our entire marketing strategy seems to be uh, about uh, pushing up our own egos. Um, all of that is getting a bit laughable now and we recognise that the, the crushing individualism of our society actually makes it very difficult for us to have meaningful relationships with each other or to belong in any realistic way. But don't lose sight of the foundations of that which are rooted in a Christian understanding of human beings made in God's image and each equally value to him. I think there is value sometimes in turning the clock back, in remembering where we've come from in order for us to understand the blessings that we have. It's that old um, uh, uh, saying that maybe your grandma used to say, count your blessings, count them one by one. Then it will surprise you what the Lord has done. And it's, uh, it's actually so true. So true. What we're going to do in this first uh, section of this epistle to the Ephesians is roll the clock back. We are going to remember where we, in terms of we as the people of God, across 2,000 years have come from, whether the blessings of God that we now take for granted uh, were first understood and experienced. And uh, uh, although there is much that's going to go on in this chapter, uh, that I think is going to be our starting point. I'd like you to think back. Think back to a time when you just knew that you didn't belong, that you didn't fit in, that the people around you were better than you, knew more than you, had a better education or culture. A time when you were really conscious of really not fitting in. Can you think of a time like that? Maybe it was when you first started coming to church and uh, you suddenly start to encounter all of these Christians who seem to know the Bible back to front. They've got all this theology. They seem to know the right thing to say at the right time. And you feel a little insignificant and not very important. I think of other situations. I remember when I first um, went to university and um, I'd done science A-levels. I had my white socks and everything. Um, and I went to study geology. And my course was full of geeks. And I was amongst them. And um, I still am, really. But, um, uh, and at university, I encountered this remarkable group of people. They were all the sort of um, the, the creatives, the sort of uh, designers and artists of various types, and the fine artists in particular. And they were an astonishing group of people to me. I don't think I'd really encountered them before. They were um, passionate and inspiring. Obviously, they were creative. They were often articulate. They were often quite emotional, quite up and down. But life was never boring. And I remember thinking it was like I'd been living in black and white. And suddenly, here were some people living in colour. And it's um, uh, no accident that Angela, my wife, was the designer at that university. Um, because they transformed the way that I experienced life. And certainly, when I first started, I, just, I was completely in awe of these people. I didn't know what to say. I realised that I'd been sort of living in black and white all these years. The next time I experienced it was um, uh, when I went to Oxford after my degree. I went and trained as a teacher there. And uh, uh, lots of you will know Oxford. It's an astonishing place. Those dreaming spires. thousand years of history. And I was suddenly conscious that I was probably surrounded by some of the most intelligent people on the face of planet Earth. And 
I mean, actually, they could be pretty stupid in other ways, but they were very intelligent, and uh, they were often very privileged, had great educations, and uh, I just felt so dumb and insignificant. And the truth is, actually, that a year on, I kind of, uh, it all paled a little bit. I'd seen some of the sort of arrogance and uh, unpleasantness of it. But certainly, I remember when I arrived, uh, feeling utterly intimidated and totally insignificant. If you can remember a time like that, you will have a glimpse into the experience of some of the key players in this story. One of the uh, major uh, um, things that's going on in the early church, particularly in the book of, Eph uh, book of Ephesus, is that there are two types of Christians. There are some who used to be Jewish, or are still essentially Jewish, who had a remarkable heritage, and there are a whole pile of new um, uh, uh, Christians who were Gentiles, who didn't think that they belonged, who tended to get treated quite badly by uh, the Jewish uh, Christians. And Paul, in this book, is undertaking a remarkable project. It is essentially a post-Jewish church, a genuinely diverse, multi-ethnic church. And he is addressing primarily that issue of the value of everybody, of the fact that everybody can know God equally, and that there aren't um, uh, better and worse Christians, there aren't first and second priority uh, Christians. And if you want a, a key text for understanding the beginning of Ephesians, it's uh, chapter 2, 14, where Paul says, uh, For he himself, Jesus Christ, is our peace, who has made the two one and destroyed the barrier, the dividing wall of hostility. He is our peace. He has made the two one. The church in Ephesus was precious to the Apostle Paul. Uh, he planted it with his own hands. He spent three years there. And uh, while he had a lot of influence on many churches, this probably was the one that was closest to his heart. And uh, as a, an epistle, this is a very beautiful letter. It's uh, been described as the queen of the epistles. And um, uh, it is uh, uh, rich in its theology. Its language is beautiful. It's sophisticated. It's often uh, quite heavy, um, uh, quite dense to understand. But it's Paul talking to a church that he knows. And he's trusting with them with some of the astonishing mysteries of God. And uh, by contrast to some of the other churches, like in sort of Galatia or Corinth, where he's very clearly uh, dealing with single issues in order to get them back on the straight and narrow, here Paul is dreaming of what a church could be and should be. And I hope that as we catch a glimpse of Paul's ideals about what church can be, that starts to shape who we are. One last comment before I get stuck into the text. Um, this was the first book of the Bible I ever taught through many, many years ago. And it's always been a favourite of mine. It's always quite an important um, uh, book in terms of my own understanding of God. Um, and it was also, it's also very important in terms of shaping theology, shaping my theology. Here is just a little comment um, that I've been struck by as I've been preparing for this service, uh, this series. I'm, I'm a bit cross. I'm a bit cross at the reformers. That might sound like a strange thing to say to be angry at some people who died 500 years ago, but I am, um, because they really shaped my theology. I suspect they've shaped your theology a lot too. And while much of my kind of reformed theological uh, framework based on people like Calvin and Luther is really valuable, um, there are times when they just make me really cross in their tendency to... Um, will totally decontextualize 
their theology. What I mean by that is um, there is a tendency to badly misread the Bible and um, a failure to read text in context. There is a sort of real naivety of proof texting theology. And this passage, I think, is a classic example of it. And uh, those of you who have, a vague, have any vague thing about what I'm talking about, um, I'm sure we'll see as we look at this that there are some really key verses in here in terms of Reformed theology, which actually, when you look at the passage as a whole, don't mean what, they were, what I was always taught that they meant. And um, so, really, that's one of my great convictions about the importance of preaching the Bible and preaching it uh, like this, sort of in terms of exposition, is because it constantly challenges our theology. And um, so my prayer is that it would do that and God would continue uh, to help us understand better his word and what it means to be his people. Let's get stuck in. This uh, letter in verse 1 is written by Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God. I think you probably all know who Paul is by now. Road to Damascus, uh, last of the great apostles. Um, a remarkable character who goes from a slightly psychotic um, uh, um, anti-Christian to one of the most amazing evangelists and church planters in the world. And um, he's an apostle. An apostle simply means one set. One sent by Christ Jesus with this message by the will of God. And uh, it's written to the saints in Ephesus, the faithful in Christ Jesus. And that's our first little glimpse of that theme of the inclusivity of the gospel. This letter is written to the saints in Ephesus. Does that mean to the special, holy, sacred, set apart, very, very nice, very, very good? No, it doesn't. It means to all of them. All of those who are faithful in Christ Jesus, who are at Ephesus, Paul describes as the saints. Saints really means those set apart, those sanctified, those made holy. And there is in that line no them and us, no um, good and bad, no greater and lesser, that all of them, just as all of you who are faithful in Christ Jesus, are the holy ones of God. You are saints. In verse 2, he comes up with a phrase which in some ways articulates the whole good news. Grace and peace to you from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. It's his, um, it's his little greeting. If you were to write a, a postcard from uh, the beach in Spain, you would probably say, dear, church in the corner, greetings from Torremolinos. I'm having a fantastic time. <laughs> or not. <laughs> Paul's message isn't Torremolinos. It is God himself. Grace and peace to you from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Those two words, grace and peace. Again, one of the things that I've found important in this, and I think is... Uh, an important thing to do when we're looking at the Bible is to not take words for granted. Grace and peace are such familiar words. They're, they're in all of our songs. We use them all of the time. Um, and there are many words which like that are just very familiar to us. And the problem when we start to assume that we know what words mean is that they lose their value and they lose their power to transform our thinking. And so I will often, you will find, be picking up on uh, uh, simple and obvious words and giving them some more context. So, for example, grace is such a familiar word. But the thing that's fascinating about it as a word is that we have no translation for it. It's actually, a grace is a made-up word. It's a translation of Greek word uh, charis, which is a very sort of New Testament word. And um, uh, Tyndale, who was the first person to translate the Bible into English, didn't have an English word for it. And uh, so he translated it as loving kindness, which isn't actually a bad translation. 
Uh, modern translators have actually uh, chosen to essentially coin a word, the word grace, which really doesn't have a great deal of meaning other than its theological context. And uh, uh, grace is a sort of uh, a shortcut word. Um, uh, it's uh, used throughout the New Testament, uh, but it's best understood, I think, through Jesus' parables of grace. And so all of those sort of stories about vineyards and kingdoms and uh, workers in fields are parables of grace, which speak of... Well, this was a really nice um, uh, articulation of it, I found. Uh, the grace of God is something that upsets settled human ideas about merit and worth and what is deserved and what is due recompense. Let me say that again. The grace of God is something that upsets settled human notions about merit and worth, about what is deserved and what is due as recompense. Someone else articulated it as the unmerited generosity of God. But it's such a crucial word, but it is a shortcut word. It speaks of a much bigger picture. Grace and peace to you from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Verse 3. One of the things I will also try and do, gosh, I'm doing all sorts of things in this series. I'm getting a bit excited and carried away. But one of the other things I want to do is um, uh, try and, there's going to be some other people, I'm encouraging other people at church to do some uh, preaching, which is really exciting. And um, uh, one of the things I want to do is sort of, uh, uh, along the way, give little pointers to things that I find helpful in terms of understanding passages, which I think will be uh, helpful to everybody, but particularly to people who will be uh, preaching. And... Um, one of them, and that, that starts here, is the priority of, of asking questions. The priority of, of seeing the bits of the text which don't make sense to you. There's a, a great tendency when you're reading through a passage to basically latch onto all of the bits that you get and construct the message by that, by, by that method, and to ignore the bits that kind of confuse you or you don't really understand. I think there is an absolute priority in focusing on thinking about, praying about, and studying the bits that don't make sense to you, the questions that you have. Because that's the stuff that will challenge your preconceived ideas about what a passage means. And so here is uh, the question which proved utterly critical in terms of understanding this passage for me. Um, it's in verse 3. Praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in the heavenly realms with every spiritual blessing in Christ. Now, it might sound insignificant, but my question is, who is the us? Praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in the heavenly realms with every spiritual blessing in Christ. Natural reading, us. Us, them, us, us. Um, and I probably wouldn't have got any uh, further than that until I noticed that in verse 12 and 13, something happens. Look in verse 12. It says, In order that we, who were the first to hope in Christ, might be for the praise of his glory. Verse 13. And you also were included in Christ when you heard the word of truth. You see what's going on? There is an us and a you in this passage. First part of it speaks about us, who are the us. Second part speaks about you, who are the you. It comes up lots of times again, but probably most significantly, turn over the page in Ephesians chapter 2, verse 1. As for you, you were dead in your transgressions and sins. That's a really significant you. 
What's going on with this us and you? These opening verses from 3 to 12 are all spoken about the us. And it's the story of God calling his people to himself. Now let me just remind you that Jesus, those four Gospels, his earthly ministry was almost all done within the context of Jerusalem. Almost everybody that he encountered, almost everybody who responded to the kingdom of God was Jewish. It is always surprising when a Gentile, when somebody who's not Jewish, gets to encounter Jesus Christ. And you have some remarkable stories, like the Gentile woman who uh, uh, asked the question, surely the dogs get to eat the crumbs that fall from under the children's table, if you remember that one. It was always a surprise when somebody who wasn't Jewish got to encounter the kingdom of God. And then it struck me that even Pentecost, that astonishing day when the Holy Spirit was poured out on people from all sorts of different countries, actually was a Jewish event. At Pentecost, the people who were gathered were God-fearing Jews from every nation under heaven. I was really struck by that. They were from all sorts of different nations. They spoke all sorts of different languages, but they were God-fearing Jews. Don't look now, but that is in Acts chapter 2. Jesus comes almost exclusively to the people of Israel. And this chapter is not primarily a discussion of you and me. It is a discussion about them. Those, um, that early church made up almost exclusively of Jewish people. And when you get that, the rest of the passage starts to fall into place. It all starts to make some sense. So look at verse 3. Praise be to the God and Father of the Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in the heavenly realm with every spiritual blessing in Christ. Blessed us in the heavenly realm with every spiritual blessing in Christ. Pick up some details as we go along. Why every spiritual blessing in Christ? Well, because patently God hadn't blessed them with every material blessing in Christ. They were an oppressed nation. They didn't rule themselves. They'd been overrun by Babylonians and Romans. Um, they lived in poverty and oppression. And yet they had every spiritual blessing in Christ. Because he chose us in him before the creation of the world to be holy and blameless in his sight. In love, he predestined us to be adopted as his sons through Jesus Christ. So look at verse 4. He chose us in him before the creation of the world to be holy and blameless in his sight. That's one of the uh, passages which often causes an awful lot of confusion. It's caused great debates um, about God's election and predestination. But actually, if it's not talking about all of us, but it's talking about the people of Israel, then hang on, it makes perfect sense. The people of God were chosen by God to be this exclusive nation. They were there to exhibit his character. It's still a remarkable truth to say that he chose them before the creation of the world, but it was always God's purpose to call a people to himself, that he would be their God, they would be his people, and they would exhibit what it meant to be God. They were a privileged people. They had this rich history of God's special attention. And, um, and Jesus is the culmination of the story of Israel. So in verse 5, he predestined us to be adopted as his sons through Jesus Christ in accordance with his pleasure and will. It is in Jesus that the people of God, the people of Israel, learn to call God Father. 
They learned what it really meant to have a personal relationship with God. Verse 7. In him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of sins in accordance with the riches of God's grace. Once again, familiar words, redemption. It's a very sort of Christian word, and we need to be, always be aware of very familiar words. Redemption literally means to buy back something which has been sold. To redeem is to buy back something which you have sold on. The people of God had redemption in Jesus Christ's blood. Why? Because they had been sold. You remember the story of the people of Israel, how they were rescued out of Egypt, brought into the promised land, granted a king, granted a law to make them the people of God. And then as they started to turn their back on God, they were uh, sent prophet after prophet who warned them of uh, what the consequences of their rejection of God was going to be and issued promises about what the future could look like. And ultimately, as they continued to reject God, he sold them into slavery. He sold them into slavery under uh, Babylon, and it was a slavery that they were still in to this day. And it is by the blood of Jesus Christ that they are bought back, that their freedom is bought at a price. It is by Jesus Christ that those people of Israel are granted freedom. So in him, verse 7, we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of sins, the very sins which caused them to be sold into slavery in accordance with the riches of God's gracious, generous mercy. And he lavished on us, verse 8, with all wisdom and understanding. And he made known to us the mystery of his purpose in his good pleasure, which he purposed in Christ. Because Christ is the fulfilment of that Old Testament story. In Christ, all of those things come together. And in Christ, it all starts to make sense. And what is the purpose in verse 10? To be put into effect when the times have reached their fulfilment. To bring all things in heaven and on earth together under one head, even Christ. What is God's objective throughout that grand narrative of the people of God culminating in Jesus Christ? Well, it's that picture that we saw in Isaiah. It's that picture which is echoed throughout the New Testament and ultimately in Revelation of a time when creation will be restored, when God and his creation will be reconciled to one, one another, and when all things in heaven and on earth will be brought under one head, even Christ. You know, one of the great failings, I think, of recent Christianity has been its failure to articulate our hope. Uh, it's, uh, uh, it's wishy-washy articulation of some ethereal heaven, which is the place where you go when you die. That is not the hope of the New Testament. That is not the picture which um, uh, the great promises of Isaiah point towards and which the book of Revelation culminates with. Those pictures are not of some ethereal heaven, but of creation restored, of humanity reconciled to God, of all things made not simply as they were intended to be, but made better than they could ever be imagined to be. Our hope is not floating on clouds, but is walking two feet firmly planted on the new earth, which is God's new creation. So God's purpose through all of these things, when the times have reached their fulfilment, to bring all things in heaven and on earth together under one head, even Christ. And then Paul comes uh, to a sort of recent history in verse 11 and 12. He says, and in him we were also chosen, 
having been predestined according to the plan of him who works out everything in conformity with the purpose of his will, in order that we, who were the first to hope in Christ, might be for the praise of his glory. That early church, that fulfilment of the Old Testament story, those renewed and redeemed people of Israel were for the very same purpose that the ancient people of Israel were for. Their purpose was that they might be, end of verse 12, for the praise of his glory. The reason for their existence was to proclaim the goodness, the glory of God. And then the word changes in verse 13. And it says, and you also were included in Christ when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation. Having believed, you were marked in him with a seal, the promised Holy Spirit. The mood changes. And no longer are we talking about that grand narrative of God's purpose throughout the whole Bible. Now we're suddenly talking about right here and now, in first century Ephesus, probably about 62 AD, when you have a, a small group of uh, people who were never anywhere close to God, who never knew that God uh, made them or was interested in them in any way, until Paul turns up and proclaims this astonishing story, this astonishing good news that actually God did make them, God does love them. God has bought them at a price and reconciled them and made them part of this story. When they heard that word of truth, the gospel of their salvation, And so suddenly you have this picture, which the New Testament often uses lots of, um, sort of pictorial language for, of people sort of grafted on to an ancient tree as these new branches. Suddenly they're incorporated in something bigger and grander than they could ever imagine. They thought their lives were so insignificant. They thought that they didn't matter in the grand scheme of the universe, and suddenly they are brought into this remarkable story. And all of the privileges and the blessings of those ancient people of God, that story which predates time, suddenly we are brought into that story. And what is the proof of that belonging? Having believed, you were marked in him with a seal, the promised Holy Spirit, who is a deposit guaranteeing our inheritance until the redemption of those who are God's possession to the praise of his glory. What is the proof that God cares equally for his ancient people and for you and me who have no heritage, have no right to God, have no reason to believe that we belong? It is the Holy Spirit. It is that God has given of himself that each of us might experience him for ourselves, might know him for ourselves. That Holy Spirit, which is the first uh, fruits, it's the beginning of uh, the recreation that God is working in the whole earth. And it is a deposit which guarantees our inheritance until the redemption of those who are God's possession to the praise of his glory. Paul in the book of Ephesians is dealing with the very real problem at the time that some of the Christians knew that they were important, knew that they were special, knew that they were valued by God, and looked down on others who were Gentiles, who had no heritage, no history. And in order to address that problem, in order to uh, create this remarkable project which he is doing, which is a genuinely post-Jewish church, a 
a genuinely multi-ethnic and diverse um, uh, 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 church. The thing he doesn't do, which I think most of us would be tempted to do, would be to sort of belittle that heritage, to say being Jewish doesn't matter. There's no great value. The Old Testament, you know, whatever, it's all a bit of a failure anyway. Um, we're all just Christians together now. Paul doesn't even start to do that. And the reason he doesn't start is because that big picture, that grand narrative of God's purposes that predate creation, is so precious and such a privilege. And of course it's a story which is not even finished yet. Though it comes to its culmination in Jesus Christ, that simply creates a greater hope of that day when heaven and earth will be uh, reunited, when uh, creation will be recreated. We are standing in the midst of that astonishing story. And Paul doesn't even begin to under undermine it or devalue it. He says, it's the most remarkable story to be part of. And the great privilege of you and me is that we've actually been caught up in it. We have actually been given the privilege of being part of that story. One thing it does, though, is it takes away any real self-importance. I think one of the things which um, the modern church often falls into is a real sort of self-importance, a real sense that we are somehow extra special to God. I think in that story, there is a realisation that there's no place for that at all. That we are the blessed and fortunate recipients of God's overflowing and overwhelming goodness. We don't deserve this. We have no right to it. We have no history of it. We have been caught up in God's um, uh, purposes. So count your blessings. Count your blessings that though in a, a, a world order which treats individuals as of no real value, in a world where you are not significant in any way, there is no inherent value in you, you have been caught up in a story where you suddenly discover that the God of creation, who is working his purposes out, has called you to be part of it, and grafted you into this ancient story. It is the great privilege of the gospel, but never take it for granted. The story is going to unfold. I hope that has raised all sorts of questions for you. I hope it's intrigued you as to what Paul is doing here, and how it is that he's going to do this job of creating a genuinely inclusive church. But for now... That's the first part of the book of Ephesians. Next week we'll look at the second half of chapter 1, and then we'll move on to the remarkable chapter 2. But for now, let's pray. Heavenly Father, we are grateful to you for your word, which reveals to us your purposes in creation. We're grateful for the way that when we allow it to, it constantly challenges our thinking, renews our understanding. We pray that over the course of these next couple of months, that you would speak to us in new ways. Help us to understand more, not simply of your word, but of what it means to be your people. And we thank you on the basis of this passage tonight, of this remarkable privilege that we have. Though of no significance, and of no great worth, we have been caught up in your remarkable narrative throughout history. We have been made part of the ancient people of God. And we have been caught up in the hope which is theirs and is now ours of a future beyond hope. In Jesus' name.